health, good spirits. There are a few little nicks and cuts here and there. Someone wrenched their back, and Alex has still got problems with an ankle. He fell, well, I guess a week or so ago, and sprained his ankle, so he's still hobbling around and had problems with it this morning. But I haven't heard of a lot of sickness, and I see most of us are here, so there must not be a whole lot. <clears throat> Maybe we should be sure we get a certain amount of exercise and walking around and not eat too much. Maybe I won't say much about that. I'm certainly not going to preach. I'll talk about it in the announcements, because then I have to practice it. <clears throat> Hard not to eat too much here, isn't it? Food's good. I really appreciate it, and I think we all did who were able to be there. The food provided by the Clarks, Johnsons, and Criders last night at the park, uh, very fine. <clears throat> I eat too much. But we sang quite a bit, and uh, that helped, I think. A lot of energy going into singing those hymns. That was a wonderful time. Uh, this is an announcement that only has to do with the community, and I, I, since it's not Sabbath today, I, I wanted to uh, apprise you of it. We got our property tax bill uh, a couple days before the feast, so you might keep that in mind. The tax on that whole place last year was $200, so it was all rated as agricultural land. That has changed. <coughs> The tax bill this year was something over a little over $4,000, which sounds like a lot to you and me if we were shouldering it individually, but that's not very much, really, for the amount of dwellings and people we have there, uh, roughly $200 per family, I guess, and we'll have to have a talk sometime after the feast as to how we should uh, go about taking care of this, <coughs> partially because, though they indicated at one point they might try to assess each lot individually. They didn't do that. They just lumped it all together since it's one property. So we could be thinking about that, and we'll discuss it at some time in the future. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is uh, give you the time to plan a little bit. The first half of that tax is due, I think, November 1st or November 15th, somewhere. I think it was November 1st. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I had other things to do, but... <coughs> That means we only have to take care of about 2000 and then later on we get the rest. So keep that in mind and think about your budget and so on, and we'll figure it out later. Enough of that. Uh, tomorrow the service, tomorrow's the weekly Sabbath, uh, is at 2.30 instead of in the morning. Give you a chance to sleep in, have a late brunch maybe, and, and uh, have the idle time. Well, not idle. Uh, use it, but uh, time in the morning instead of the afternoon on the Sabbath tomorrow. Here's a, I thought was an encouraging comment. Someone commented to me that they were talking to someone, I guess, in the local area who is not connected with the church in any way, but they were discussing who we were, and, uh, oh, they said, oh, you're from that group from out of cane beds that helps each other. <clears throat> I thought that was a really nice comment. And, uh, there has been an awful lot of serving and helping one another out there, but somehow it's sort of spread around to others. We are known, you know. Uh, we are not uh, walking around without casting some kind of shadow. 
Well, they know us, know of us. I mean, you don't come into a Mormon area without them knowing someone has arrived, <clears throat> no matter what size, and that you differ from them. That is inescapable to them. But there are some positive comments, and that's not the only one I've heard. That's just one I heard yesterday, and I thought it was really thoughtful. Well, maybe not necessarily thoughtful on their part, but it was a comment based on what they had heard of us. And I hope that we can get more positive comments along those lines. That's, that's always encouraging. We know the other will come. <laughs> but as long as we can set a positive light under these fairly peaceful conditions in the world, uh, that is a positive for us. <clears throat> now, let's go back to the book of Isaiah again today. Um, these first six chapters deal with the social problems in Israel and certainly the social problems that we have within the Church of God today. And that's why it is... Uh, it's not negative. God is pointing out the difficulties and the problems in us personally and as groups uh, and in, as a nation, Israel as a whole. And these have to be addressed. Uh, it's not pleasurable to address them, and we get past some of that today. It's not pleasurable to address them, but at the same time, God has been angry with the nation, and still is, and with the church, and essentially still is. You simply have to examine why. As long as we're in denial and will not admit that we have problems, then we'll never overcome them. We'll never come back to sharing the good grace of God again. So painful as it is sometimes, <clears throat> we have to look at ourselves very hard, very searchingly, and examine ourselves and find what might be amiss, what might need to be changed, and then go about changing it so that the sun does shine again. Because I want God to be happy with us. I find that most of the church is not really in-depth searching these things out. They just see a problem. You know how it is if you ignore something? The, the problem is there, but unless you begin to do something about it, define it, fix it, it just remains. And people have problems throughout their life. The same problem. They never, ever overcome it. Or problems, or whatever. Because they never really admit that there is a problem there. <clears throat> At any rate, because of the things we read yesterday, the attitude in the churches of trying to look like the biggest and the best and the finest, as the Pharisees did, God says at the end of chapter 3, Your mighty men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Both spiritually as they are falling now, and then most will go into the tribulation and fall there. Someone told me one of the children commented about some things that I had said and read. and said, well, I don't want to be ripped up. Well, I, I'd agree with that. But that, those things can be kind of traumatic for our children. They feel so helpless. 
But let's remember that the children are sanctified by the parents, 1 Corinthians 7. And that we have a very heavy responsibility to our children to be sure that we get things right with God, that we are accounted worthy, so that our children might be taken care of. And our children should be able to look at our lives and see the changes that are occurring. They should see the humility and the willingness to admit wrong and respect us for that as we change. And as that happens, they will feel secure that their parent is not a hypocrite, but is one that is truly working at, overcoming, growing, and pleasing God. And as they see that, then they also will see the scriptures that say what will happen as we do please God, and how that he promises protection to us if we do the things that we ought to be doing. So it isn't all gloom and doom. We do win in the end, but in the meantime we have some work to do. But anything worth having is worth working for. I mean, we, we have been trained differently than that in our country today. We've been trained that you should have instant gratification with no effort of your own. That you should be given everything. Perhaps the older generation sitting here, the bald and the gray heads and so on, um, may have experienced a bit of a different society as you grew up, but certainly those in the younger generation, once this nation began to prosper after World War II, our parents, well, we have a generational problem. Those who were children in World War II and began to grow up as adults recognized that they did not have much as they grew up. World War II took a lot out of this nation. <clears throat> People were poor. They didn't have much. They were not able to give much in terms of things to their children. I mean, they, they did not have many things themselves. So now, they have children, and they do not want to be deprived of what they didn't have either. They want to make it up. But that isn't always the answer. If you give too much, too easily, then you have a generation who thinks they ought to have everything without paying a price. And those from 40 on down have grown up in that kind of climate, for the most part, in our nation today. So we have to understand that you have to work at something. Anyway, he concludes chapter 3 by saying that the mighty men, the leaders, will fall. Uh, those who tried to lead in a wrong way, as the Pharisees. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Well, the church is feeling somewhat that way. And it is going to become more so <clears throat> as the churches fall, as they fail, as leadership fails, and there's less and less organization because one stone is being knocked down off another. Pretty soon, the whole church will be sitting down in shame and feeling very left out, very alone, and very desolate, not being able to find answers anywhere. Well, chapter 4 introduces a change, an uplift, really, if you will, uh, where God begins to intervene. It says, and in that day, when the desolation, the destruction, is pretty much complete. I don't think we're there yet. There's still a lot of destruction that will have to occur in the church before this all comes to a halt. 
most are not sitting on the ground yet in desolations. Most of them are still thinking, we're doing a great work, we're the ones that are going to save the world is pretty much the attitude of most organizations today. If you'll just listen to us, everything will be fine. They're not sitting down desolate and thinking, man, now what? Yet. Some individuals are, but not the organizations as a whole. But in that day, when this has been accomplished, when God has knocked it all flat, Seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Now let's look upon this as the seven churches of Revelation. And once it has all been flattened, and God has spewed it all out, they'll be looking for leadership looking for guidance, looking for help, looking for some ray of light somewhere. And it will be so decimated that all seven of the churches will take hold of one man. Now, if you look upon this as a national thing only, and the men have been killed in war so badly that there's only one man left for every seven women, that's a pretty pitiful plight. And it's a pretty pitiful plight as far as the church is concerned, too, in some respects. What happened to all that leadership we thought we had? Thankfully, though, there's going to be a man to take hold of. God is going to provide leadership. Let's go back to uh, Isaiah 41. I don't want to go back too many times further in Isaiah here at the beginning, because we'll come to these things later on, but in Isaiah 41, he gives some encouragement to Israel and to the church, and talks about fearing not and and, uh, having courage and so on, which is the same language he uses in the book of Haggai, where he starts putting the end-time temple together and beginning to show the answers to the problems that the church today has. But in Isaiah 41, verse 19, he says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, uh, the myrtle, the oil tree, and I will set in the desert the fir tree, the pine, and the box tree together, or the box elder. That's a list of seven. Seven trees, seven churches will be brought together in the wilderness and in the desert. Now it's a spiritual and uh, a spiritual wilderness and desert, and yet God has a way of doing these things in such a way that I think it is also a physical wilderness and desert. That's what God has done in the past. So he's going to plant a remnant of all seven of the churches in the desert and in the wilderness. Seven will take hold of one man. In other words, God is going to provide singular leadership, not a vast panoply of leaders clamoring to be the ones but he's going to give a leader. Now let's go back to uh, Zechariah 3 here for a moment. Zechariah 3. We'll get a glimpse here, which of course we've already covered in the Minor Prophets series, but a brief review here since we're coming across it. Uh, I want to go down to about verse 8 of Zechariah 3. He says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, 
For they are men of sign and wonder, as my margin says. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now we know Christ is referred to as the branch. Uh, that is a symbolism of him through the scriptures. And yet on the other hand, uh, there are those who are types. Now, Christ is going to come and rule the whole world. But he has always governed his church through men. While he is the chief cornerstone, while he is always in charge, he has always had men there to be leadership. So he's going to do that again. He said to Joshua that he would bring forth his servant, the branch. Well, when you examine the story of the two witnesses, one is Joshua, introduced first in chapter 3, and told that the branch would come forth. Now that branch as I see it, is a type of Zerubbabel who is introduced in chapter 4. I think that it is even mentioned there. Let's see. It talks about the uh, the candlesticks, not by might nor by power, but his hands had started something that they would finish, I think implying that there was a period of time where he would be out to lunch and not doing it, I thought the branch was mentioned here again. Maybe it isn't, or maybe one of you sees it there. Um, there are several scriptures which seem to indicate this. Verse 12? Or chapter 12? Pardon? Oh, chapter 4? Oh, okay. Yeah, it mentions the two olive branches. I was thinking where he's mentioned as the branch itself. I think that's in chapter 6, come to think of it. Yeah. That's the one I was actually looking for. That's verse 12, too. They're both mentioned as olive branches. But the leader of the two is Zerubbabel, as it was in Ezra and uh, Nehemiah, and as it is here. Verse 12, And speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Branch, uh, limb, bough, all of those could be used. Speaking of a part of a tree. Now Christ, of course, we know is the main vine, using uh, a vine instead of a, a tree analogy. Uh, and we are the branches. But this is a leading branch, and God is introducing the leadership here. Uh, he is introduced as the branch, even he shall build the temple of the Lord. So here's a man building God's temple. And he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. Now he's talking about Joshua here in verse 11. Then he introduces the branch, same as he did in Zechariah 3. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So there will be a time when the two witnesses come together in peace, and lead the church at the time when God is drawing his remnant together, as the story of Haggai clearly shows, that he will stir both the leadership and the remnant of the people to come together to build the church. Um, verse 15, And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, your God. So, one man will be the branch, in that sense, I think, symbolic of Christ, who is the ultimate leader, but the one who is 
representing him here in human affairs. Back to Isaiah 4. And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, the righteous branch. There's a place in, uh, I think it's uh, Isaiah 37, yes. Let's go down for a moment here. We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Now you can look at this as a millennial context, if you wish, and Christ is coming himself, who will set up a worldwide government. But meantime, you have those who are escaping spiritually, and they need physical leadership as well. I want to go back to Isaiah 37 a moment here. Isaiah 37. And let's pick it up in verse 30. Isaiah 37, verse 30. <clears throat> and this shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year that which springs of the same, and in the third year sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah, and Judah represents the spiritual Jews today, shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So God is going to plant something that is going to take root and produce fruit. That is not happening in the church today as we see the church being further scattered. The roots are being jerked up, and the fruit is diminishing and disappearing, isn't it? For out of Jerusalem, remember that's a, uh, a symbolic word for the church today, shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion. The zeal of the eternal of hosts shall do this. So even here in the sordid mess that we have, God is going to cause something to take root and then begin to bear fruit upward. Now let's go back to Isaiah 4. <clears throat> there will be beauty instead of burning. The burning is going to end. Those who go into the tribulation will go there, but God is going to bless his remnant. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, those who are the faithful ones who remain true to God, true to his people, those who are left in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem, shall be called holy. We will have grown and overcome and found the good graces of God to the point that we will be called holy, named holy. Those who are called and chosen and faithful, as the book of Revelation says. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. There are those who will still be spiritually alive and those who are spiritually dead. When the eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, all the branches of the church will be purged and cleansed. Many will not take to the cleansing and the chastening very well. And they will not repent, but a faithful remnant will. And shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, and the Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now is this 
millennial or is this before? In the millennial setting in Revelation 21, there's no need of any light of the sun or the moon or anything else because the Father and the Son are the light of it. It's clearly shown. But here, in this Mount Zion, this is speaking of, there will be a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. That's a different light than just the Father and the Son and their glory lighting up the world, isn't it? Now let's compare that with Zechariah 2. Here again we see the leadership of the end-time church being uh, the latter temple being introduced and the conditions under which this will be. <coughs> He's talking about the church having been scattered and then rebuilt at the end of chapter 1. And chapter 2, I lifted up my eyes again in Zechariah and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Where do you go? And he said, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. In other words, what is left? Who is yet faithful? It has to be measured, both by a plumb line, as we've seen in, in other uh, scriptures, I think in Zechariah 4 as well. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. This isn't millennial, this is beforehand. This isn't the heavenly Jerusalem, this is towns without walls. For I, says the Eternal, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Same language that we're reading there in Isaiah 4. That Jesus Christ himself is going to be the protection. He will be the wall of fire. He will be the glory in the midst of her. And the context is at the time that we leave Babylon. He says, verse 6, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal. For I spread you abroad, or scattered you, as the four winds of the heaven, says the Eternal. Then he says, verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. That ties in very well with Isaiah 52, where he says, Come not out hastily, but get away from her. Deliver yourself. He puts that upon us. But we are to deliver ourselves before this all comes down on us. For thus says the eternal host, After the glory as he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, or the peoples that spoil you. For he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. And this is premillennial. Notice verse 13. Be silent, O all flesh, before the eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. In other words, this is the point in time in which Christ rises up to finish, to start, and to finish the end time work. So I think there's enough tie in there to show that Isaiah 4 is speaking not just of physical Israel, but of the church itself, and that the events at the end time, as outlined in Zechariah 2 through 4, apply to Isaiah 4 as well. That God has been cleansing and purging, and is starting to rebuild, as per the four carpenters there in Zechariah 1. So he will be a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, or upon all the glory shall be a defense, a covering, a help, a protection, in other words. Now, will this be something that's visible? I don't know. 
It's something that was visible when they came out of Egypt, uh, and this is a very similar situation. I think it shows that it's not in Alaska or Siberia as well. You don't need a covert from the heat there. Uh, you need a covert from the heat out in the desert. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. So God is going to supernaturally protect his people. They might be, at that point, in a place of refuge or a place of safety, subject to the elements to one degree or another. And the electrical grid will probably be down. And the services that we have all come to know and be familiar with simply will not be there. And there will not be trucks running by the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands back and forth across the land providing food or things, maybe I should say, to the supermarkets for us to buy. So God is going to take a hand. Perhaps it is symbolic. Perhaps it is physical like it was back in the days when Israel came out of Egypt. I don't know. But we do have, however that works out, a protection here of God's promise if we are the faithful who still dwell in Zion. We are still faithful to God and his body, his church, his people, his assembly. So even though there are some difficult things discussed in chapters 1 through 3, when we get to chapter 4, we see that out of this deplorable situation, where there is only one man God will look to, two ultimately, but one who will be the leader of the two, that the seven churches can take hold of. Well, that is a frustrating situation. There is hope for those who are willing to take hold, for those who survive. Now let's go to chapter 5, and it, it flashes back. He gives some encouragement there in chapter 4. But then he explains here in chapter 5 what has happened to his church. Now we've gone back and seen this probably several times over the last several years, but since we're going through this chapter by chapter, I want to cover it again, and as I said at the beginning, uh, I want this book to stand on its own, not just be a reference that we use in other areas. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Now, when Christ plants a vineyard, he has great hope and expectation, does he not? When you plant a garden, you have hope and expectation. If you didn't think that something would grow there, you wouldn't bother to fill the soil, fertilize it, plant the seed, and water it. But you anticipate and expect that something will happen. And Christ did the same with his church. And he calls it a vineyard in John, and talks how he is the vine, we are the branches. So the same analogy is used for the New Testament church that we read back here in Isaiah 5. Now he planted ancient Israel with great expectation and hope, didn't he? And she grew, and he married her, made a covenant of marriage with her, and then she found other interests, went other ways, other directions, and he called her a harlot and a mother of harlots, and divorced her as a result of her inattention to him. So, he came up with a newer covenant, a better covenant, based on better promises, this time involving eternal life, and made a new covenant 
with the New Testament church. The old is still around, but it's fast fading away. The only real reason or need for the Old Covenant today is that most of Israel and the world have not been offered the New Covenant. And they must be judged under the terms and conditions of the old. And the blessings and cursings of Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 28 will be visited upon the physical nations of Israel as a result of not following that covenant that was made all those years ago. The punishments that are there will be the finality, then, of the old covenant. God will visit for the sins physically of our nation. And the death penalty of the old covenant will still be there to be exacted. That vineyard didn't work out too well. Now, does that make God a failure? No. He has a plan whereby all Israel will be saved, according to Romans 11. They'll be resurrected, they'll be given a chance at the new covenant, and most will be saved. You see, the world thinks that God and the devil are in a race to see who can win over the world. And they say, the devil's winning, the devil's winning. How much strength and power do they think God has? He's going to win in the long run. God is a father, and he's going to be a successful father. Now, his children went astray for a while. But he is going to bring them back after exercising the spirit of burning and judgment upon them, and they will be resurrected physically with very humble, contrite attitudes and be yielded and peaceable and peaceful and ready to listen. They will not listen now. They can only be warned now, but they will not listen. We're going to see that a little later on here. But then God will save most of Israel. He will win in the long run. Those who go into the millennium having been humbled, who don't die in the tribulation and the seven last plagues, and then those who are resurrected at the end of the thousand years, they'll have their chance then. Now, of his church, I would say the same thing is essentially true. He says he will only save out a tithe or a faithful remnant, a 10% group, who will be a light to the world. The rest will go into tribulation, but there's an indication back at about Zechariah 12 or so, wherever it is, I'm not going there now, which indicates that about 30 to 40% will repent during the millennium. After the millennium, I mean during the tribulation. Uh, and many of those who may not have been converted in the first place, so they warmed seats in God's church, may not have even had a chance at salvation because they were tares planted by Satan who were burned up in the tribulation. May some of them go into the lake of fire if they were at the point where uh, they knew and didn't do. But I think many who are in the church today never really got the picture, like Mr. Armstrong said. I don't think half of you get it, brethren. I heard him go as low as 10% in his analysis of the church and how many were getting the message. So many, many in the church were never converted. And they may have their chance later on. 
So God as a father is going to be successful both with physical Israel and with the church ultimately. Now what advantage is it to us to beat and pummel and crucify ourselves every day right now? We can be in a better resurrection. We can be in leadership positions. We can be the highest of the kings and priests in the millennium. Or among those 144,000 who are kings and priests, and those who have salvation later in the millennium, the great white throne judgment will not have the blessing and opportunity that is offered to us. We're offered to be the very bride of Christ. That makes it worth it. And there are people scattered throughout the church today in all seven who will be faithful. That's why no one can claim exclusivity today. We can't. No one else can. His faithful are going to come from everywhere. And only he knows where they are and he will stir them to come when it's time to finally put the latter temple together. I'm glad he's making those decisions, not you or me. He can analyze, he can think, he can look at the heart, the mind, the intent, the purpose, the attitude deep down. You, know, you, can, you can visit with someone and they can be saying this or that and out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. But you don't know what's going on in that head. You can't discern everything that's happening in someone's head. And they can fool you. They can deceive you even as they can deceive themselves. Self-deceit is one of the most difficult things for us to see through. But God is going to see this thing through, and he's going to be a resounding success. Let's never forget that. And if he's going to be a success overall, he wouldn't have called you now. He wouldn't be revealing knowledge to you now, except and unless he expected you to make it and to be a part of it. He says in chapter 5, Now will I sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. God planted his vineyard in a good spot with great anticipation. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes in great anticipation, and it brought forth wild grapes. Physical Israel has, and right now, spiritual Israel has. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, church first, the nation second, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. He says, whose fault is this, mine or theirs? Is it Christ's fault that we're in the condition we're in? Or is it our fault? Who slumbered and slept? What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? He gave us true doctrine for the most part. He planted it in a place where it could grow. And through Herbert Armstrong, he made a broadcast available so that people could come from all over to be a part of it. And to some degree it prospered physically and even spiritually to a point. But then it began to produce wild grapes. What could he have done more? 
but I had not done it. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth wild forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Now listen, I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the heads thereof, and it shall be eaten up, no longer being a protection and a fence around it. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I'm not going to give it the care I was giving it, Christ says. I'm just going to be hands off. I'm not going to dig it, dung it, trim it, fix it. I'm just going to let it go. How does your garden grow if you leave it alone? If you don't water it, you don't weed it, you don't dig it and till it, you don't pick the bugs off it, what happens to it? doesn't produce much. Look at the church the last 20 years. What has happened to it? Or he has just sort of left hands off. In fact, he even uses the analogy later on in this book, he turned his face from it. Couldn't bear to look at it. If you leave your garden alone and don't do anything with it, pretty soon you don't even want to look at it, do you? Because it's a mess. Well... That's what he's done. He did it on purpose, because it was not producing what he wanted it to produce. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, so that we have spiritual famine. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment, or proper judgment, but behold, oppression. Many of you have great stories of oppression. Sometimes I'm absolutely, utterly amazed at some of the things the people will tell me were done by the ministry. And probably there are those who would tell stories about me and what I have done in the past. Well, it's time for all of us to repent of that. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. A weeping, a wailing, a sorrow, a whine, a cry over the mess. And wherever you go, you hear that. Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Our cities are being overpopulated, and on a physical level, it's getting where you can't find a place to be alone anymore. Hard to find in most places in the country. And on a spiritual level, it seems like spiritual house after spiritual house is coming into being more and more and more as they proliferate, and it becomes a bother and a pain. When you've got four or five hundred splinters or daughters of Zion that have split off, and they're arguing and fighting and disagreeing and frustrated, you say, how, oh, how can I get away from this? How can I be alone? How can I find peace? I pick up the journal and I read all the news of all these and those clamoring to be recognized and who think they have the only way. And you, you begin, as you go through there, to get a little discouraged and frustrated because it is such a confusing miasma of frustration. And I don't know that there's any answer to that from the standpoint of the publication itself. I don't mean to be knocking the journal. I did get a letter from Dixon Cartwright, oh, I don't know, a year or two back, or when they were writing an article about us at one time. 
And he said, I don't agree with everything I publish either, but that's what there is. It must be confusing and frustrating to them to see the contradiction and the frustrating, but they're just trying to present the news and present what people are doing for everyone to read. So I don't blame them, necessarily. They're just reporting. Why, why do you stone the reporter? You know, why stone the messenger? I, I think they have a very difficult job. And I don't mind if this quote gets back to them, for that matter. Maybe I'll write them and tell them that. I, I think I did, in a way, back then. So we have too many houses. God's going to knock them all down, and then he's going to build one ladder temple. In my ears, says the eternal, opposed verse 9, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate. goes on to say what I just said. Even great and fair, without inhabitant. So even the big ones, the ones that look so good, are also going to be desolate and left without inhabitant. Not flat. Yes, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. Severe spiritual drought and famine. Of course, this will happen physically in the nation as well. Woe to them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Going on about their business, forgetting about God, just doing what they would wish to do. Does that mean that it's wrong for us to enjoy uh, the physical things and the physical things here at the feast? No. But we have become a church that is immersed in and part of the society and the materiality of this world. And they're just going on about life enjoying the things they enjoy rather than setting things aside and truly seeking God. That is the big problem overall that we have in the church. It goes on to mention the feasts again, as it did in chapter 1. And the harp and the viol, the tabret and pipe and wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the eternal, neither consider the operation of his hands. We go to the feasts and make music, have special music, and as we did last night, we sung hymns till we were hoarse, and I hope that that was a sweet incense going up to God, even though melodically it lacked. But I think the heart was right. But you see, we can get together and do those things, but unless we're truly seeking God, it means nothing to Him. The only way that those hymns and our prayers are a sweet incense to Him is if we are turning our hearts to him. That's what this whole thing is about, brethren. Let's never lose sight of that. I've repeated it over and over and over. I feel like a broken record, but this is the point. It's the message we have to get, and I think we have to be reminded of it continually so that we don't lose our focus. It is so easy to lose our focus with trying to make livings and trying to handle everything that this society has laid upon us. It's just difficult to keep our priorities right and headed in the right direction. I mean, I remind you frequently, but I have to remind myself daily, constantly, 
what I need to be thinking, where I need to be going, what I need to be doing. Asking God to guide, to lead, and direct, because it is not in man to guide and direct his own steps. So we need to constantly lean upon him. I want this feast to be pleasing to God. I know from what we read in Isaiah 1 and what we're reading right here, that probably most of the feasts being held right now, God can't stand the smell of. And that is a sad story. Let's make this one, at least one, and maybe there are others. I'm not saying there aren't. Let's do our utmost to make this one that he does take pleasure in. That we're not singing, we're not playing the instruments to no avail. But that it has some meaning and purpose for him. It's easy to say, I had a nice feast. What about turning around and saying, what kind of feast did God have? Because he's indicating here, he's not getting much out of most of the feasts. And I don't mean to put a damper on this one by saying that. I throw it out as a challenge, as an opportunity to give him some relief some respite, some joy, some happiness, and how his people are living and acting, and how they are seeking him and worshiping the king at this time. We're just now really getting into it, but before you know it, it'll be over. Unless we do some planning and make the time to be sure that we seek God, it'll be gone and you'll say, man, I wish I'd have done that, but it'll be too late. Let's make his feast a joyful one. Verse 13, therefore, because, you see, even at the time, not just day to day, but even at the time when you would think God's people would be most joyous, and therefore God himself would be most joyous, when would that be? At his feasts. Aren't those the highlight times of the year? Aren't those the times that we look forward to? And we feel a great dearth between the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover again six months later? And it's a long, cold winter in the, in the meantime. And we look to these things. They're a pick-me-up. They're uh, something to get excited about. And there's something for God to get excited about. But at our peak, for the most part, in the church today, that would be the feasts. God says he is not happy. He can't stand to look at them. Therefore, verse 13, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. They're not being given the knowledge to know what to do about the problem. And as a result, their leaders, their honorable men, are the glory of their... Are, in the Hebrew it says, their glorious men are men of famine. Their leadership doesn't have any food to provide. And their multitude dried up with thirst. Since the leaders don't have anything to provide, then the people are drying up. That's the way it is today, because we do not have the knowledge of what is going on. 
for the most part. I think God has shown us those things here, and I think just reading this and analyzing it gives us knowledge that is precious knowledge. It gives us an opportunity that most people and most these sites this very day simply do not have. I feel blessed to be able to say these hard things. Because in saying these hard things which God has written, it opens the knowledge to us of what we need to do so that God would be pleased and happy here. And you and I both want that. I say both, there's more than two of us here. I mean, all of us want that. Therefore, <coughs> the grave has enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. The grave has just opened its mouth very wide because there's going to be an awful lot going in. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he that rejoices shall descend into it. You see, what has happened to the church is it's become basically a formality. When you see a formal gathering, be it in Washington, D.C., or state government level or whatever, a formal affair, what do you see? You see people all dressed up in the fanciest clothes they either have or can rent, tuxedos and fancy evening gowns and this and that. Because this is a formal occasion. But when you look a little deeper beyond the fancy clothes and the fancy champagne and punch and the pickled shrimp or whatever they have to have, the fish eggs, all those things that you go to at a formal place, the food isn't very good. And they're all dressed up, but it's an empty shell of formality and there is no heart there. People are putting on the dog to look the best they can, but in a formal setting, most of them are not happy and content. They can't be themselves. They're wearing these foreign clothes. They're eating these strange foods, which many of them don't like, and they're all being pretentious. At a formal gathering, they're all saying, Hi, you look so wonderful. I love you so much. And they don't mean a word of it. They are expected to do that because it is a formal situation. In other words, they are going through formalities that they don't have their heart in. It isn't a part of their everyday life. It's a formal situation. In other words, an artificial situation. And we have been reduced to formalities in the church. God says your heart isn't in it. You're going through the motions formally. And there's a lot of pretense. We have to get our heart in it. And what God does is strip away all the formality and the pretense and reduces to a lump sitting on the ground. In other words, all God is saying is get real. Society is fake. It is phony. Its formal functions are fake and phony. God wants us to get real about this. The mean man shall be brought down, the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. Those who pick themselves up and think they're really something. 
But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Man will not amount to much when God is through. And God will be all really that remains. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin as it were with a cart rope. I like that. It's like we, we hook our rope around sin and drag it along behind us, like, a, like you pull a cart or a trailer. We're not willing to unhitch from it and walk away from it. We want to drag it along with us. If we're moving out of Babylon, we want to load it up with the things of Babylon and drag it along with us. But say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. So, oh, I hope the kingdom of God comes soon as we drag our cart full of sin along behind us. <laughs> that, that forms a picture in my mind. I, uh, it's, 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 it's incongruous. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for God. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Don't all the churches look and say, all the kingdom of God is coming. We're here at this wonderful feast picturing the kingdom of God. Let it come. We want to see it. Dragging the cart along behind. That's why he calls upon us to repent and get real and get our heart in it. Quit making it a formality. They don't know what they're asking. Woe be to him that asks for the day of the Lord. So many think they are righteous. They are lifted up in spiritual pride, saying, I am the leading evangelist. I am the one qualified. Blah, 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 blah. You've seen it. We are the ones who are doing it right. I'm here to tell you, we're the ones doing it wrong. It's time for us to repent. It's time for us to get straightened out. It's time for us to put our heart in it and quit going through the motions. Because that's basically what all the daughters of Zion are doing, and they're going to be set down flat. And we among them, unless we unhitch the cart and get real and quit being a formality. He says, when you seek me with your whole heart, and sometimes you have to get pretty desolate and pretty destitute in order for you to do that. It's just the way of human nature. I hope we don't have to go there. I hope we can get the picture, and I think to some degree we are. I don't mean to be discouraging here. I think that to some degree we are. I see people who are working harder than any group of people I've ever seen before. Now, we may not be doing enough, but we're doing more than we were. And I think God is beginning to bless us with doctrinal understanding and understanding of the Scriptures beyond what we had and beyond, if I may say so, what most have right now. But with with that comes great accountability and responsibility to do something with it and not let it to fall flat, but to really get busy cutting the cords on our cart of sin. He says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Get everything upside down backwards and can't get it straight, in other words. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. 
Brethren, we have to come to have the attitude of the publican who could not so much as lift his eyes, saying, Be merciful to me, the sinner, instead of the Pharisee who stood up and said, I have all the answers, I'm proud, uh, look to me, I can be your leader. We can't do that. We all despise the Pharisee when we read those stories, don't we? And yet, so many times we have been the Pharisee, comparing ourselves among ourselves and feeling pretty good about it, not comparing ourselves to God, as God made Job do. Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. In other words, the priorities are wrong. Uh, pray and pay. It comes down to money so many, many times. They're willing to preach things that are pleasing to the people in order to keep the money coming in so that they might do a mighty work. God is going to do his mighty work. He is going to stir both leadership and others to come and build his temple. He will determine whom to stir. And I suspect it will be basically those who have been stirring themselves. Those who have sought oil for their lamps. Those who have shown some action and some responsibility will be the ones that God looks to and says, those are the ones that I will then stir to come and build my temple. The ministry needs to get real and realize that money and booklets is not the answer right now. It's turning to God with our whole heart. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, the flame consumes the chaff, so their roots shall be as rottenness. What happens when you get rotten roots? Tree falls over. Uh, Zechariah 11 talks about three big trees being cut down. And their blossoms shall go up as dust. I bloom a little bit, blossom a little bit, and then because of no water, poof, it's gone. Flowers come up in the desert every spring, ever hopeful. And then the rains don't come, and pretty soon they wither and are gone. James uses that about human beings as well. Because, here's the reason, everything has cause and effect. Because they have cast away the law of the eternal of hosts, and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now here's a litmus test you could make of leadership in the church today. Are they beginning to water down and weaken the laws of God, beginning to put some of those ordinances aside, beginning to minimize them, beginning to say, well, maybe you don't need to do this, maybe you don't need to do that. That is a very scary situation. The Tekashas just did it wholesale. Look how many followed it. Did they not read Isaiah 5, verse 24? It's an end-time prophecy. No, they didn't read it. They just thought, hey, that sounds pretty good, and went that way. Some examined and said, wait a minute, they're going away with the laws and the ordinances and statutes of God. We can't go that way. So they separated out. But the heart wasn't fully in it. And therefore, the destruction even of those who didn't accept the initial bait are also being taken away. You better find leadership 
that will maximize the laws and ordinances of God, that will not put them away, will not try to find ways around them, but will say, we had better be doing this. God doesn't take his laws lightly, neither should we, but so many are today. We can't despise any of the words of the Holy One of Israel, but live by every word of God. Be really careful when people start doing away with things. Be happy when those things are emphasized and strengthened, not put away. I hope that's what we're doing here. And if you ever see me do the opposite and start weakening it instead, we better talk. Therefore is the anger of the Eternal kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them. And the hills did crumble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. Yes, it will happen physically, but it's happened right now. The whole church is being dismembered. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, stretched out to destroy, to hurt, to punish. And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss to them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. It's like he's going to say to the, the nations of the world with their militaries, Hey, come here, sit down. What are you going to do? To 90% of the church and the physical nation. After the church has been torn down, he's going to sick the Gentile nations in a confederacy on what is left. I don't want to be left behind, and I don't want you to be either. Therefore, we read these scriptures. They come swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. They're going to come with great purpose, great focus, to destroy Israel. Whose arrows were sharp, and all their bows bent, their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. We've seen a song about God's army. That is not a pleasant thing about God's army of faithful, that song. It's about the army God sicks on Israel who has not been faithful. Their roaring shall be like a lion, they shall roar like young lions, yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey. Ever hear a lion roar? I have in Africa, and I'll tell you, it curdles the blood. It's going to curdle the blood of our peoples as well. They'll lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. Let's go on to chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train or his skirt filled the temple. This is a vision, again, that Isaiah had. A vision of Christ sitting on a throne, very high and lifted up, above everything, above everyone, and his skirt filled the temple. Now, this is an interesting thing, because it says that Christ will come suddenly to his temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, 
with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So he projects to the time when Christ will rule the whole earth, and his glory will be everywhere. That's on the other side of all this destruction that we just read about at the end of chapter 5, both of the church and ultimately of what's left of the church and the nations. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me! Now what if you saw a vision like this, and you saw all that great glory, and you feel like a little peanut shell down here, and that's the way it always seems when when Christ appeared, whether it be a burning bush, or whether it, you know, whatever the circumstance, a man always fell on his face and towered. Remember Daniel, and how he was afraid when the angel came to him. Same thing here with Isaiah. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, or I am cut off, for I am all scared and nervous inside, because I am a man of unclean lips. When you are in the presence of the glory of God or his holy angels, you immediately begin to realize how small and inadequate and sinful and pitiful you really are by comparison. Because there is no comparison. So you begin to quake from the inside out. I am a man of unclean lips. I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Now when Christ comes suddenly to his temple, he says, I will forgive their sins in one day. That's later on in Isaiah, and we'll get to it. I won't go there now. He is going to make his presence known. Remember how he told the disciples, the apostles to be, to tarry 50 days in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Stay right here. Go Pentecost. And they did. And he suddenly came to his temple in a very dramatic fashion. Now, he has turned his face from us, as we'll read again in Isaiah later on. He's going to turn his face back to us and smile on us and bless us and forgive our sins in one day. Isaiah is a symbol and a type of that. So after this destruction of the vineyard we read about in chapter 5, and seven women looking around and finding only one man, and then the physical destruction of the nation, not just the church, following at the end of chapter 5, Christ says, I will suddenly come. I will take away your sin. Your iniquity is purged. So the sinking feeling Isaiah had in the presence of deity is going to go away because he's going to hear comforting words that I have forgiven you. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Christ looks down at this earth today and says, Who can I send? Who can I send? Of course, Isaiah was seeing this in vision. Then said I, speaking of Isaiah, Here I am, send me. And he was beginning to get a little, comp- little confidence there. 
because he had felt like he was a man of unclean lips, his sins were ever before him, he felt inadequate, didn't know what to say. Have you ever gone before uh, just a physical ruler or leader of this world or a judge or whoever, or maybe before Mr. Armstrong, I know I kind of got tongue-tied a lot of times in his presence, you know, here's, here's Mr. Armstrong, and he's the leader of this vast work, and I'm a puny little student or a young minister, and I go up to Mr. Armstrong, and what do I say? Hi. What do I have to say? <laughs> Who am I? And that's the way Isaiah felt. I'm sure you've been tongue-tied in the presence of someone that you felt knew more than you did or was more important than you were or whatever. First grade teacher, you know, whoever it was, you, you felt inadequate before. We still do. And he certainly felt inadequate there. But then when the angel said, don't worry here, I've come to take away your sin. This burning coal of altar burns away off the altar of Christ, burns away your sin. And then he says, who am I going to send? Isaiah says, well, if you could send me. Here I am, send me. Now, here's the message. That was accepted. And, of course, Isaiah became a very important prophet. And he said, go and tell this people. Here's the message I want you to go tell them. You hear indeed, but you just don't get it. You don't understand. You see, but don't understand. You don't perceive the truth. And I think that's where a lot of the church is today. They hear, they have a form, a tradition of basic true doctrines, but they don't hear, understand, and see what is really going on. Very few do. There are individuals here and there who see a little, others see something else, but they don't get the whole picture. And we're still working on getting the whole picture. We don't have it all yet. So he says, Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their ears, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. God said, I'm not done yet. I'm not ready for an overall repentance yet. He wants it to be absolutely genuine and from the heart. He doesn't want it to be in a halfway understanding. He wants it to be absolutely genuine down to the toes. So it says, for the time being, let them sleep on. Tell them they don't understand. Tell them they don't get it. But, but what can you do? They don't want to hear. Then said I, Lord, how long? How long will this be? How long will these conditions exist? And he must have felt frustrated. I'm sure Ezekiel and Jeremiah felt frustrated when God said, I want you to go take these people this message. And Ezekiel said, oh boy, I'll tell them. And God said, they're not going to listen to you. Oh. They're awful hard-headed and rebellious. Oh. But I'll make your head like flint. Oh. But you're going to have to put head with them. Oh. Jeremiah the same way. 
God had to tell the prophets ahead of that time, look, don't get discouraged. They just aren't going to listen to you. That makes you feel really excited, doesn't it? i got to get out there and get this message to them. And you know it's going to fall flat. And you know they may even decide to stone you. We're bringing it. So I think Isaiah was feeling those emotions right here. He said, how long, Lord, before they'll listen and you'll hear and you'll bless and you'll convert and heal? How long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. That's how long. God says, I have to exact this chastening, this punishment, before they're going to be truly yielded and pliable to be the proper consistency of clay in my hands. He said, it's going to take this. So this is the condition that will remain until that is accomplished. Sad but true. Going on. The land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Hasn't there been a great forsaking of God's ways and God's truth within the church, and certainly within the physical nations of Israel, who used to call themselves a God-fearing nation, and now are quickly taking the laws of God out of the land? Can't have it in the courthouse in Mississippi or Alabama, wherever that was anymore. Can't have it in the schools. We're taking it out as fast as we can. And there are those who are removing it from the church as fast as they can. The physical and the spiritual are very akin one to the other. God says this is going to happen until it is all taken away. But there's hope for those who are faithful that it will be a part of the remnant. Verse 13, he encourages him. But yet in it shall be a tent, and it shall return. Remember, God is going to stir those to come and build the temple. There is going to be a faithful remnant of God's people. You know that now. That gives you an incredible opportunity to be one of them. To respond now. To truly repent now. To understand now. Most will not. A few will. Yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten. It'll be worth it. It won't be a wild grape. It'll be a good grape. Remember, he looked and he said, I don't want to eat these wild grapes. They don't taste good to me. So I'll tear it down. And a tenth will return and be worth eating. A tenth will produce fruit. As a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. I don't know what a teal tree is. I should have looked that up. An oak has strength. It has power in its limbs. It's a strong tree. So after all this has occurred, there are going to be those who have strength. Both as a vine that can be eaten and as an oak whose branches are strong. When they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. In other words, the strength will come from God now. Not the strength of man and self-righteousness, but the strength of God. He will be the sap in there. And I don't mean sap as we look upon sap, but the, that which gives the tree nourishment and strength.
Now, chapter 6 concludes this section on the social problems in both the church and the nation. And then he turns in the next 12, or next 6 chapters, basically refer to the political problems. Again, they can be political problems within the church, and they can also be political problems within the nations. So I think today I'm going to let you out a little early and stop here rather than getting into this next section because that concludes it, and it concludes it with hope. It concludes it with Isaiah being given a message to give that he knows will not be heard by most, but that a tent will return and be strong and will be palatable, edible, good to the taste of God. And that is a very positive, encouraging note for those who have ears to hear and are not dull of hearing and asleep at the switch and cannot and can see but cannot perceive. We have an opportunity to hear and to perceive what God is saying and to be a part of that faithful remnant and to build in the temple of God and to be a part of the bride of Christ. So I think that is a very encouraging conclusion to this problematic section that we have covered. And I, I like to see some inspiration to the Feast of Tabernacles, not just more, you know, we got to change, we got to grow, we got to be different. And yet, to ever get to chapter 11 about the wolf and the lamb and all those things that we like to read at the Feast of Tabernacles, we have to consider these things, consider what God says about his feast and the Feast of Tabernacles, and make whatever changes need to be made so that when we read those inspiring sections, we know they can be referring to us, not just assuming that they did. Remember the time when we assumed that a call would come over the network that we had organized within the Church of God and the whole church basically would get up and flee to a place of safety? Remember when we assumed that and did not know that God was going to spew it out the way that he has and that there would only be a small percentage left who would be faithful? We were completely ignorant of these scriptures and of the real truth of what would happen, weren't we? So let's not assume anything. Break down the word assume. I won't do it here. You've all heard that one. And see what it makes of you and me. We cannot assume anything. We need to take these things seriously and look at why God has been upset with the feast. Rectify that situation. Fix it. And then, when we get over to chapter 11 here in a millennium or two, we can take great hope in it, knowing that it could apply to us and truly apply to us, not assuming something. We must take care of the details. If we take care of the details, the big things will take care of themselves. So let's, let's seriously consider these first six chapters through this feast and, and understand what we need to do to make sure God is happy by the time we get to the end of the last great day and he can send his blessing upon us as we go away instead of saying, they still don't get it. Guess I'm going to have to put the screws to them a little more. We don't want that, do we? Let, let's do our part now. And, and make God happy by the time this feast is over.